Well, open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians. We rejoin our investigation into chapter 6. Last week we looked at lawsuits among the saints as Paul was dealing with their propensity to sue one another. Litigation was a big thing. It was entertainment. It was a challenge. And so they had willingly given themselves over to engaging in lawsuits with one another. And it didn't matter if you were a brother or a sister in the Lord, if you attended the same house church or what it was. And so Paul turns his attention into another glaring issue within the church at Corinth, and that is sexual immorality. Here, as I uh, think about this topic, and as I will say later in the message, you know, our, our culture and cultures all around us continually want to redefine what is immorality. And the reason that cultures seek to do that is so that we can't be accused of wrongdoing or of sin. And as we'll see in our passage today, there's just no way of working around the truth of what God has established. Redefining what sin is doesn't make it any less sinful. It's just a way to try to placate our attitudes, our ideas, our emotions about ourselves and perhaps even about others. So in many ways, the Corinthian Christians were a product of their time of their culture, of their environment, just as you and I are today. We think about where we are in our life, and many of us have had 50, 60, 70 years for our thinking to be strengthened within our minds and within our lives, yet there is a generation coming up behind us who knows nothing of God's definition of morality. And so they would read passages like this and they would go, no, wait a minute, I don't think I've ever heard that before. And we kind of take this as second nature as an assumption that everybody would agree with what is immorality and what should and should not happen. Yet, that's not really the way it is. All people are a product of their culture and as cultures change and drift further away from absolute truth, it becomes more and more obvious of how deeply we need to have these objective truths ingrained into our lives. So the Corinthian church was heavily influenced by Greek culture and by Greek thought. And in this culture, they embraced a position on sex that was common for their time and one they found very, very difficult to change. Just it was hard for them to give up their love of human wisdom, of worldliness, of pride, of a divisive spirit, and of their love for litigation was also incredibly difficult for them to give up their ideas about what was and was not considered sexually immoral. So Paul concluded the previous section where he was dealing with lawsuits with what is a surprising comment by many, and that is a a declaration that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God lumping in with that those who are willing to sue their brethren as an egregious act of unrighteousness. And so Paul gives down ten examples of lifestyle that in his mind would be indicative of those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. And at least four of those are very directly related with sexual practice. So this conversation that Paul concludes this section on litigation with provides a segue into what he'll begin to deal with now as a problem within the Corinthian church, and that is 
how sexual immorality had plagued them. And then when Paul gets into chapter 7, he's going to deal with the healthy view of sex as it relates to the marriage relationship and continue to deal with some of the irregularities that existed there. So what we see in this passage, most specifically in verses 15 and 16, is the mention of prostitution, which provides the backdrop for the problem that plagued the Corinthian church. So much of Greek religious expression included sexual freedom, and many Greek temples included prostitutes as a part of the religious experience. Now, that's pretty shocking. I don't know of any quote-unquote Christian church that has sexual prostitution as a part of its practice, but this was common experience within this culture, within the life and the practice and the example of the Corinthian Christians. So sexual relations with temple prostitutes was so common that the practice came to be known as Corinthianizing. Imagine that. We talked a little bit about this. The city of Corinth was kind of like a modern-day Las Vegas. It was known as Sin City, and many people would make their way to Corinth for the purpose of engaging in this kind of immorality that could only be found there. Let's read our passage of Scripture today to see what God's Word says to us about the topic of immorality, beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up, Through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now we'll look at these verses in four main parts, and there's a little bit of a play on the phraseology that Paul uses. Paul takes some of the common phrases that the Corinthians would use, and then he turns them and uses them against them in a means of correcting their thought and their practice. So we'll see a mixture of this throughout these four points that we're going to look at. The first point we're going to see is the principle. So the passage begins with a combination of a hallmark of Paul's teaching, and that is the principle of Christian liberty or of Christian freedom. Now, Paul talks about this most specifically in regards to salvation, but this teaching had been picked up on by the Corinthians, who were witnesses of Paul's teaching for some 18 months, as recorded in the book of Acts. 
And they have twisted what Paul used as a celebration of Christian freedom as it relates to salvation into Christian freedom to do whatever I want to do. So this is the phrase that we see here, verse 12a, all things are lawful for me. Now this was the phrase that the Corinthians Christians would recite, and what they would mean by that is because I have freedom in Christ and in Paul's teaching in regards to salvation, and then coming out of that parenthetical statement, the Corinthians would say, therefore I can do whatever I want to do. So again, Paul taught this principle of Christian freedom or Christian liberty as a way of combating works righteousness. Paul taught over and over and over that salvation is based upon God's grace. It is given to us through faith, And it has absolutely nothing to do with our works. Works righteousness has always been a struggle within Christianity. So Paul would say is perhaps the most declarative statement about salvation and of being antithetical with works righteousness. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So even trying to faithfully observe every aspect of the law as the Jewish converts to Christianity would do, Paul would say, even in your greatest attempt to observe every facet of the law, you still cannot save yourself. In Romans 3.20, Paul would say, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And we can't get into Romans and, and fleshing out all that that means, but basically the law exposes what is sin, and our inability to keep perfectly every aspect of the law exposes our utter sinfulness and our need for something outside of the law to enable us to be acceptable to God, and that is where grace of Christ comes into play and our faith in His work on the cross on our behalf. So, Paul emphasizes the Christian's freedom from the law as it relates to our salvation, but the Corinthians had twisted Paul's teaching into a freedom to do pretty much anything they wanted to do. So the phrase, all things are lawful for me, became the basis for how the Corinthians approached their new life in Christ, and it apparently became their catchphrase for how they defended their actions. Now, we don't necessarily have a catchphrase like that in our church, but what do we have as a catchphrase in our culture? And I almost blurted this out when Ken was reading from Proverbs and asked us about what is it that guides us into the actions that we that we follow up on. And so what is it that guides us? What is it that defines right and wrong? It's our heart. Just follow your heart. Do whatever your heart says. Do what your heart leads. Follow your conscience and you will not go wrong. Well, there's a great Greek word for that. You want to know what it is? It's baloney. That's not true at all. Our hearts will lead us to sin in a heartbeat. Our conscience can be seared by our environment in such a way that we could read the objective truth of God's Word and say, well, that can't possibly be right because nothing in my experience or in 
my culture tells me that what I've just read in God's Word is actually right. So we don't have a catchphrase like, well, all things are lawful for me. But Christian, we must be very, very careful that we don't allow our heart or our conscience to dictate what is right and what is wrong. Because after all, what we believe is going to determine what we will do. If you don't think adultery is wrong, you're perhaps going to commit adultery. If you don't think stealing is wrong, well, then you're going to find opportunity to steal. So Paul is dealing with how they have twisted this freedom in Christ for salvation apart from works, and they've twisted it into my ability to do whatever I want to do because I have freedom in Christ. I have had in my life some Catholic acquaintances that I have discussed this topic with, and a Catholic Christian will, or a Catholic will say, well, I can go out and sin because that just means that God's grace is going to be given to more, given to me more. You know what that means? I can do whatever I want because God's grace is going to cover me. Well, that's not what the grace of Christ is about. So, Paul uses the twisted catchphrase that they have created, and he adds something to it. First thing he adds is Christian caution. 12b. Well, 12a. All things are lawful for me, and Paul adds to that phrase, but not all things are profitable. Those who promote unlimited freedom in Christ often minimize or ignore very clear and obvious danger. Now let me give you just hypotheticals. I don't want to get into... In fact, I'm not even going to be specific. So let's say there's something that isn't specifically determined to be sin in the Bible... But we have to derive from principle in the Bible whether this activity is or is not wrong. And so generally what we will do is we will look at this activity and we won't consider at all if it's profitable. We're just looking to see if there is a very clear declaration against such a thing. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't say that I can't do that. But I don't think it's a big deal. I don't think there's anything wrong. So what Paul says here is not all things are profitable even if by the lack of very specific clarity in God's Word, we can't say that is wrong. So not all things are profitable. That term profitable means to have an advantage. So these activities that we might want to engage in in our life under the umbrella of Christian liberty, we have to be very, very careful and we have to be very, very objective and ask ourselves this question, is there an advantage to me spiritually if I am going to engage in this activity? So in a sense, the believers are free and are no under no longer under the penalty of the law in any way is very very profitable isn't it we don't have to try to perform to a certain level in order to be saved isn't that profitable for us that we are covered by the grace of God. We don't have to try harder to earn our salvation. We don't have our salvation taken away because we've missed in one point of the law. Isn't that profitable? But the price for doing some things is 
terribly high and terribly unprofitable. And we aren't always honest with ourselves when we give consideration to this activity before we engage in it. We try to minimize the potential consequence that might come from that activity. So sin never brings profit. Never, ever, never will sin bring profit. It always brings loss. And this is the point that Paul will make. So we have to be very, very careful that when we are engaging in activity under the umbrella of Christian liberty, that we're honest with ourselves about this. Is this profitable to me spiritually? So the Corinthian application of Christian freedom has led them into an acceptance of sexual sin. So in the same way that they were able to tolerate and perhaps even celebrate the sin of incest that we looked at in chapter 5, they accepted the practice of temple prostitution and flaunted it under the guise of Christian freedom. Now, we can look at this example and we say, well, that's very, very clear to me that they shouldn't have engaged in such a thing, but we need to be very careful that there aren't similar types of activity in our life that we are guilty of that we have erased as the potential to be sin under the umbrella of Christian freedom. So anytime we openly flaunt our understanding of Christian freedom in our life, we must be cautious that we are not opening the door to sin. So the question we must ask ourselves is not is this permissible for me, but is it profitable for me? And this will become more obvious as we look in more detail about the topic of Christian liberty as Paul will deal with that in chapters 8, 9, and 10 a little bit later in our study. So Paul adds to this Christian caution the very worst result, and that is number two, Christian capture. Paul says, as the completion of this phrase, all things are lawful for me. Paul would say, but not not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And that is the idea of a Christian being captured by the very activity that they were unwilling to consider the profitableness of before they entered into it. So if we ask ourselves the question, is this profitable for me? And we find out later that it's not profitable to me. It's actually bringing me great harm. And oh my goodness, I don't know how I'm ever going to escape this. There's the capture that Paul wants us to be concerned about as we entertain the idea of what falls under the umbrella of Christian liberty. While we are willing to tout or celebrate our understanding of Christian freedom, we must be very aware of the problem of becoming captured by that activity. Let me ask you this question, and there really is only one correct answer to this, so it's a loaded question. Does sin have the potential to enslave us? Yes, it does. It certainly does. Not forever and forever because the power of the Holy Spirit in us has set us free from the dominion of sin. But until we appropriate what God has made available to us, we stand the potential of being captured by that very thing. This is why... 
Paul uses the term as being mastered, which carries with it the connotation of sin. The term mastered means to exercise authority over. Paul says all things are lawful, but not things are profitable. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul uses this exact same phrase in Romans chapter 6, and he says, For for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now the application is a little bit different here and not being mastered by the requirements of the law, but the principle is the same and that is being mastered by sin. So it's quite obvious that Paul has concluded that their application of freedom has led them to being dominated by or controlled by sexual sin which became the product of their choice. Now, you might want to asterisk that comment. Anytime you and I are being dominated by our sin, it is because of our choice. Sin does not sneak up on us and jump in our back pocket and capture us. Sin sneaks up on us and presents itself to us and we go, oh, what is that? What shall I do with that? Well, that's kind of shiny. That's what a fish says when it sees the lure in the water. That thing's got my attention. I need to investigate that. I want to look at that a little bit more closely. That looks like something I might want to consume and before we know it, we're captured by that sin. It is our choice. There is probably no more devastating sin than that of sexual sin. And those who are mastered by sexual sin tell the same horror stories of those who are addicted to incredibly hard drugs like heroin. A heroin addict has such a slim chance of breaking free from that addiction, apart from the work of Christ in their life, there is this inability to break away where thoughts are constantly consumed by this activity and the end result in our life is real and actual devastation. We get an example of this and we read this many, many weeks ago in Proverbs chapter 5 as sin presents itself to us in the form of the adulteress. Proverbs chapter 5. Listen to this. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. So if the adulteress does not know it, how much less is the one who sees the honey dripping from the lips and hears the speech as smooth as oil, how much less are they aware of the destruction that awaits them when they give themselves over to immorality? In in terms of sex 
And in the context of the way that it's being used here, God has provided within a marriage relationship what is to be a unique and a joyful experience, and sin has distorted it into one of the most destructive realities in our world. Think of all the sexually transmitted diseases. Think of the death that has come as a result of these transmitted diseases. Think of all the unwanted pregnancies ending in abortion. Just in the United States alone, it is estimated that a million and a half babies are killed every year because a mother says, I don't want that. You know, in the 1960s, they tried to mitigate the consequence of free love, and so what did they do? They came up with the pill so you wouldn't get pregnant. And when that wasn't enough, they came up with prophylactic devices. And when that wasn't enough, they opened up abortion clinics. And when that wasn't enough, they passed prescription or they passed medications you could get over the counter without a prescription to end the life of a baby. Think of the millions and the millions of lives that have ended as a result of sexual immorality. Think of all the unfulfilled life goals because of unexpected unexpected pregnancies. Think of all the lives that have been forever changed by the reality of sex trafficking. Think of all of the marriages and families and children's lives that have been affected by adultery. We could go on and on and on and point out all of the ails in our society that are the result of sexual immorality. And the bottom line is this. Our culture continues to try to redefine what is immorality and attempt to set aside or to mitigate the devastating consequences, but the end result is the same. Immorality brings destruction. It's just that obvious. It's just that simple. And yet our world wants to say that that isn't so. So even as you think about Sin City... And the haven of Las the haven that not Las Vegas is for all that is wrong with our culture. The catchphrase is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I gotta tell you that's not true. And the mugshots of the Clark County Sheriff's Department tell the story. The lives that come back from Las Vegas that are never the same tell the story. And that is immorality is destructive. Now the second point in our outline that we're gonna look at is the premise. Now the premise here, Paul is going to introduce, and this premise is based upon Greek thought. Just as Paul introduced the idea that all things are lawful to me, which was the catchphrase that was spoken by the Corinthian Christian, Paul is taking what they have said and what they think, and he is going to use this argument against them. Much Greek philosophy considered everything physical, including the body, to be basically evil and therefore of no value. Think about that. If your physical body is considered to be evil, then what happened to your body or what happened to the body of other individuals by you was considered of no value. Does that sound familiar? Have we really evolved as a species 
when some 2,000 years later we have these, these same ethical debates about the value of life? How else can a woman or a father take this life and put it in a bag and put it in landfill or put it in a garbage can or throw it into the river or commit unspeakable crime against people who have been created in the image of God. Well, they do so, we do so, because our physical life is of no value. So in Greek thinking and in the Corinthian mindset, food was food and the stomach was the stomach and sex was sex. Sex was just a biological function like eating to be used just as food was used to satisfy their appetites. So Paul uses their faulty premise against them and their thinking is that my sexual desire is just an appetite that needs to be fulfilled and however I deem to fill it because I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want to do. <laughs> you hear things like that. You think things like that. You go, now wait a minute. How do they ever come up with something like that? Well, human philosophy and human wisdom. The elevation of man's own mind and man's own thought process. And the, the removal of any absolute truth. We can basically create anything we want to create. So they have created this premise that their sexual desires are there and their obligation is to satisfy their appetite. So Paul begins this premise here in 13a. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Now Paul is not saying that as a part of scriptural inspiration to say that that's the way we're supposed to think of it. After all, if we were to do that, we would all be 300 pounds and just grossly overweight and unhealthy and everything. So Paul's not saying that this is true. Paul is using these words against them and exposing their faulty premise. So there is a biological relationship between food and the stomach, and the stomach is used for the digestion of the food that is eaten. In a similar way, man has a sexual appetite, a biological function, if you will, and sexual immorality is how they have chosen to satisfy that biological appetite that is the premise for them accepting sexual immorality. So Paul points out a couple of problems here with this premise that they have. The first one is this. Number one, appetites are temporary. So in response to this idea that they have that food is food and the stomach is stomach, Paul goes on to say in verse 13, but God will do away with both of them. Now, neither the stomach or the need for food will be a reality in our eternal state. Both of these things will be done away with. And so what Paul has done is Paul has injected a resurrection reality into the faulty premise they have about the physical body that they inhabit in the here and now. It's the same reality for us. These physical bodies that we inhabit are temporary 
And the food and the, the stomach and the need for food will be done away with in our eternal state. But, number two, the body belongs to the Lord. The body is the Lord's. That's exactly what Paul says here in the latter part of verse 13. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So their entire premise is wrong because they think the body should be given over to whatever appetite it has. And in this instance, the body should be given over to the appetite to be satisfied through sexual immorality. And so what Paul says here is that your premise is absolutely faulty because these appetites that you're trying to fulfill are temporary and the body that you inhabit is the Lord's and the Lord is for the body. Immorality is not what the body was created for. It was created for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now, the third way that Paul exposes the faulty premise that they have is the resurrection proof that he provides here in verse 14. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Now, let me take a very brief time out. One of the major themes that Paul is dealing with in the book of Corinthians here, is the denial of the resurrection that had begun to filter into the teaching of the Corinthian church. And so this is one of the things that was introduced. And this is one of, I think, the second instances where Paul has introduced a resurrection reality into the way of thinking. So here, there's resurrection proof about the value of our bodies. So our bodies are designed not only to serve the Lord in this life, but also in the life to come. Now, let's pause for just a second. The body that you and I inhabit, we had ministry friends 30 years ago, and he called it our earth suit. This earth suit that you occupy is designed to bring glory to the Lord. It's not perfect. Now, that's pretty obvious. I was talking with Pam this morning. With each new decade brings a whole new understanding of the frailty and the weakness of the body. Yet, nonetheless, our bodies are designed to serve the Lord. So, our bodies will also serve the Lord in the life to come. They will be changed bodies. They will be resurrected bodies. They will be glorified bodies. They will be heavenly bodies, but they will still be our bodies. We who are afflicted with physical limitations, whether it be a bad knee or an arm that doesn't work or ears that don't hear or eyes that don't see, we will be given a glorified body where we can perfectly serve the Lord where in the temporary nature of our sin-cursed body, we cannot do that as fully as we would like. In the life to come, as a part of the resurrection, we will have a perfected body with which we can serve the Lord in eternity for all eternity. Now, the stomach and food have only a horizontal Temporal, temporal relationship and at death 
That relationship ceases to exist. But our bodies are far more than biological. And for the believer, they have a spiritual, vertical relationship. They belong to God and they will forever endure with God. Isn't that great to know? That this body that we struggle to get it to do what we want it to do because of the limitations of the sin-cursed world that we live in will one day be perfected and able to serve God fully and perfectly in the life to come. Well, I'm going to pause here and I'm going to pick this up next week. We're um, already 30-some minutes into this and I've got about another 20 minutes to go. So what I would rather do is pause here and develop some of this last half that I didn't develop as fully for the sake of time and space and put a pause on where we are right here. So we have this principle... that we understand as it relates to Christian liberty and that liberty that we enjoy is limited in our salvation and what God has freed us from in terms of works righteousness. And we also have this premise that we've looked at where the body is simply an unworthy vessel that has no value that should be catered to in every possible way, and that has led the Corinthian believer into a lifestyle that is in total disregard for the very clear teaching of Scripture and of what Paul spent 18 months reinforcing in their lives as he was the one that planted this church in Corinth some years ago. Now, one of the things that I want to caution you over is this. When you and I think about sexual immorality, we think about the worst-case scenario, and we say, you know, I'm not guilty of that. But we must think about Jesus' application that if we lust after another person in our heart, then we are still guilty of adultery, right? Now, we haven't physically committed the act of adultery, but spiritually, in our inner being, we are guilty of that very sin. So before we disregard our inclusion in this topic, we need to be careful that we shut out how the Lord would speak to us by denying that this is a challenge or an issue for us. So we'll pick this up next week, and we'll pause here for a time of prayer before we go on to sing as a point of conviction and commitment to Him. Would you pray with me, please?